Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. My guest today is John Tobin. John is Managing Director, Portfolio Manager, and Senior Research Analyst at Epic Investment Partners. He's also a CFA Charter Holder and holds a PhD in Economics. We had lots to talk about. John explains why the death of dividends is exaggerated, shares advice on managing the fire hose of information that analysts deal with on a daily basis, and explains what he learned from weathering several financial crises over the course of his career. He also gives us a glimpse of life through the lens of an economist and shares what he expects the economic recovery to look like in the US. I really enjoyed my conversation with John, and I hope you do too. John Tobin, welcome. Thanks so much for being here on the Take 15 podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I'm curious, I, I know Epic, the office is in uh, New York. Are you joining us from New York City or the surrounding areas? From the surrounding area. I've been, we've all been working from home since the middle of March. So I've taken on the dining room and my dining room table is now my office. Okay. And, and how is the situation uh, where you are? Um, stable, I think. People are getting sort of uh, a little bit more comfortable with going out and about. The statistics in New York are a little bit better. Um, and we've all figured out that we have to take a mask when we go to the supermarket and things like that. Some of the businesses have started to reopen. Some restaurants are open for outdoor seating. So new normal, but starting to look a little bit more normal than it did in March and April for sure. Well, that's good news. Long may it last. So um, you're part of the shareholder yield team at Epic, and so I'd love to start our conversation there. Um, as you well know, there's been a lot in the news about corporate cash flows uh, under stress. Um, and at Epic, I believe that one of the firm's favorite topics is the five uses of cash flow, um, three of which uh, involve returning uh, the cash to the shareholders, whether it's through cash dividends, stock buybacks, or paying down debt. And I'd love for us to focus on dividends. So actually, just this week, as I was sort of getting some notes together, I saw an analyst uh, note that was headlined, do dividends matter anymore? And then literally a day or so apart, I saw an American banker piece, no bank should be paying dividends now. So let's start there. Is this the death of dividends? So I think the, the short and definitive answer we would give you is no, it's not. Uh, we've done a lot of work on this topic. We did a webinar a few weeks ago and we used that title, The Death of Dividends, greatly exaggerated. Apologies to Mark Twain. Um, the, there is a lot of stress facing businesses today around the world. Uh, and it is undeniable that cash flows are being affected and many businesses are really stressed. So yes, some companies will have to cut their dividends. Some companies will reduce their dividends. Many already have. Um, companies are going to end up in bankruptcy as a result of this pandemic. So we don't in any way mean to diminish uh, the severity of what's happening. But at the same time, we know because we've been doing this for a long time and because we've done a fair amount of historical analysis, we know that in times of stress and recessions, um, we can see certain patterns and they're pretty predictable and reliable. So for example, uh, dividends tend to go down less than earnings in aggregate. And that's a pattern that we've seen over and over again in recessions going back many decades. 
Um, we also can observe patterns such as stress in both earnings and dividends occurring primarily in a few industry sectors, consumer discretionary, financials, uh, and energy seem to be the, the usual suspects time and again. But so then there are other sectors where earnings and cash flows tend to be more resilient and therefore dividends tend to be more resilient. And I can tell you that in the strategy that I help run, which is focused on identifying companies with sustainable cash flow and sustainable, attractive, growing dividends, the overwhelming majority of the companies in our portfolio today have been able to maintain their dividends. And many of them have been able to raise their dividends in this period. So um, despite the headlines, despite what you see in the media, no, dividends aren't dying and going away. So you said there were some sectors that were definitely under pressure. Uh, are there sectors that you think will do better with their dividends going forward? Well, so I think right now the, the businesses that are uh, better positioned, well, maybe I'll start with the businesses that are facing the stiffer headwinds. So probably no surprise that I would point to businesses like airlines and hotels and movie theaters. These are businesses that um, have been severely affected by the stay-at-home orders, by the um, social distancing restrictions that have been put in place. And those businesses, it's not clear what the path of recovery is for them uh, in the near term. But other businesses, consumer products companies, information technology companies, healthcare companies, and frankly, even uh, quite a few financial companies are still in a position to have growing cash flows that supports and allows them to continue to pay and grow dividends. So I'm wondering, are you seeing or hearing about any political pressure to adjust shareholder distributions? Uh, has it been up in, in the, the lead up to this time? Or as we go into the elections, this is an election year, do you think that will have some sort of effect on the, on the payouts? It, it's absolutely true that there has been a fair amount of public and political pressure on companies on the topic of shareholder distributions during this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the most, I guess, um, uh, obvious examples are in the financial services sector. You mentioned a moment ago that you're, you saw an article in the American Banker suggesting that banks should halt their dividends. One of the Federal Reserve Bank presidents has been pretty vocal making that argument that banks should stop paying dividends. Indeed, I saw an article today that that same Federal Reserve Bank president is calling on banks to raise capital. And in Europe, we saw the ECB effectively tell the banks to halt temporarily paying dividends. And we saw much the same thing in the United Kingdom with the Bank of England. So pretty significant um, political and regulatory pressure on financial institutions uh, to hold back on paying dividends. So we're definitely seeing that. Although, in a way, I think I'd say it's, is that new? Maybe it's a little bit louder now, but I don't think it's a new phenomenon. Paying dividends, certainly share buybacks, they've been controversial uh, for a long time. Uh, you have sort of a, maybe a sense that here we are in a, a profound recession. The number of unemployed people has skyrocketed. So how do you justify paying dividends uh, when the businesses are laying off workers? And there's a, there is a certainly an intuitive logic there, but I think what people don't appreciate is 
they don't really appreciate where those dividends go. Uh, they perhaps have an image that there's a, there's a hedge fund manager in Greenwich who's living in a mansion and that's where those dividends are going. So why should we be paying her dividends if the rest of the company is, is struggling, laying people off and, and reducing uh, compensation to workers? Uh, the fact of the matter is really that dividends typically flow to a lot of retail stockholders who depend on that income to support their lifestyle and expenditures. Um, so in speaking of lifestyle and expenditures, I think I'd be pretty confident in saying that the, the sort of the hypothetical hedge fund manager in Greenwich is not supporting her lifestyle with the dividends she's collecting on her Procter & Gamble stock. That, that's really not where dividends are going. So yes, there's political pressure, um, but nevertheless, um, for many businesses, they're in a position to say, you know, we have the wherewithal. It's a management decision, it's a board decision. And as long as you don't have a regulator like the Bank of England or the European Central Bank saying stop dividends, it becomes a question of uh, the prerogative of management and the board to determine what's the best allocation of cash for the shareholders of the business. And, uh, and so to the extent that they have the ability to continue to generate cash flow and continue to cover the dividend comfortably, they should. And as a stockholder in many of these businesses, we think that they should. So John, you have an interesting background. You have a PhD in economics. And uh, when we had our sort of call before this, uh, I believe you said that when you wanted to go into sort of finance, it was to get closer to the investment decision-making process. Um, and I'd love to sort of pivot a little bit to uh, the process side of things. You know, you're an experienced analyst. And uh, when we were chatting before, you said that, yeah, I think you said that when your kids were asking kind of to describe your job, you said it was akin to being an information processor and sort of that, that horrible sort of image of cramming before a, sort of an exam, all this information you've got to sort of get into your head. So we have a number of, um, you know, listeners who are in a similar situation, so our investment analysts. And I wonder if you have any advice sort of for fundamentally oriented investors about techniques or tools for streamlining the amount of information that they have to process uh, on a daily basis. Well, I wish I could tell you that I have figured it out and uh, there's a magic trick to sorting through this enormous amount of information that flows like a fire hose every day at us. Uh, I don't think there really is any magic trick. You, we just try to pay attention as much as possible to what's going on uh, and process the information. The question that we, uh, you know, that you always ask yourself over and over and over again, whenever you see a headline, whenever you see a news story, whenever you see a company mentioned, what does that mean? What does that mean for the company? What does it mean for the sector? What does it mean for competitors? And just following those sort of logical um, pathways and exploring who could possibly be affected possibly positively or negatively. Uh, as a result of whatever the news is. Uh, but at the end of the day, maybe in terms of advice, um, I guess maybe the, the thing that I would say is uh, to be an effective investor, stick to the facts and stick to foundational principles. And what I mean by that, and I think this is, we've already talked a little bit about uh, the sort of cash flow philosophy at Epic Investment Partners. So not surprisingly, perhaps, I would say that one of the foundational principles that is perhaps the most important is the value of business is the discounted present value of the cash flows that the business generates over time. So sooner or later in your analysis, 
it always comes back to cash flow. How does the company generate cash flow? How does the company allocate cash flow? What's the outlook for cash flow going forward? Sooner or later, Netflix is going to have to generate cash flow. Uh, it's, no, it's not a new model. It's not a new paradigm. It's the same old model and paradigm. So the valuation of a business like that has to eventually show that it's capable of generating cash flow to support that valuation. So in this day and age, it seems it's hard to have a conversation about information without also the word bias. Um, and I'm wondering, how do you, uh, I guess, avoid bias or not necessarily avoid it, try to mitigate bias as an information processor? Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, that's a challenge. I think um, the maybe one thing to think about and one way to frame it in your mind every day, as I often think about it, is Every day, I have to ask myself, as I look at the portfolio, at each individual holding the portfolio, why do I own this stock? What's the investment thesis? And is it still valid? And you know, one way, perhaps, to avoid biases or maybe being swept along in some waves of market sentiment, which do happen clearly from time to time, is to trust your own judgment. Uh, and recognize that the market does have these periods of, well, to use a word that Alan Greenspan used many years ago, irrational exuberance. Um, if, it, if you look at a stock and you look at its valuation and you look at the behavior of the share price, and it seems to you that just doesn't really seem to make sense to me. What am I missing that the market is seeing? Well, many times over my career, I have found that in fact, it wasn't something that I was missing, but rather an episode of the market's over-enthusiastic uh, embrace of a company or a concept or an, an industry sector. Um, in the dot-com era, for example, 1999, as that bubble was inflating over and over again, I would say to some of my coworkers, is it me? Am, am I missing something here? What, what, what's wrong with this picture? And indeed, there was clearly something wrong with the picture. And so trust your own judgment, trust your own analysis, and maybe that's the best way to try to avoid getting swept up in market biases. Right. So I guess you got your start in this career in the, the 1980s, and you've seen your fair share of financial crises. I was sort of looking through the list, and there have been a lot of uh, down markets in that time. So we have you know, the stock market crash of 87, the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, uh, the dot-com bubble and crash, the great financial crisis, the great recession. We now have the, the COVID pandemic. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, as a professional investor, what have you learned or how have you weathered these storms? Uh, and has that helped you as you've gone through the last six months uh, with this crisis? Well, I think, uh, so thank you for pointing out that it's been many decades that I've been doing this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I tell some of my younger co-workers uh, in the 19, I remember the 1987 crash and I remember uh, the people I was working with at the time standing around the Reuters ticker tape machine and of course the response is what the heck is a ticker tape machine well that's how you got your real time information back then so yes um, you know, I think there are some lessons that, that, that I've learned I hope uh, and that are relevant in navigating the current crisis, the current uh, COVID pandemic crisis. Um, 
Maybe one lesson is um, you generally don't see it coming, uh, even if perhaps in hindsight the, the signposts seem obvious. Uh, these things have a way of sort of sneaking up on you, and it's sort of a who who expected that kind of um, uh, sentiment or, or reaction. Um, and maybe another lesson that's related is that even when someone does see it coming, uh, like maybe some of the prominent hedge fund managers who uh, very profitably navigated their way through the housing bubble and the global financial crisis, uh, it's important to remember that having guessed right once doesn't mean that you have a crystal ball and that you're always able to see into the future. Uh, we have a tendency to say, well, this person predicted the global financial crisis, so we have to listen to that what that person has to say. They may or may not have something really relevant to say. Um, and again, just because they guessed right once very profitably doesn't mean that they're going to be able to um, strike lightning again. Um, and maybe one of the most Maybe one of the most relevant things, and I had a conversation, and this is a, a, a personal friend in March, at the end of March, who was asking, you know, gee, should I just sell everything and put everything in a money market fund? Is that the right thing to do? The market is, it's terrifying what's happening in the market. And my advice was, I don't, I don't think so. Um, the lessons that we've learned from, the, from 1987, from the market crash, from 9-11, um, uh, from the global financial crisis is, the world recovers, markets recover, economies recover, and it really, it really never is the end of the world as we know it. Uh, so even though in March it was frightening uh, and hard to stay invested, um, the best thing I could say in March was, well, if you'd had a crystal ball, you would have sold in January. But you didn't, and I didn't. And so now the market's down 25%. Now is not the time to sell. Uh, at this point, the market is likely to recover over time. Um, and maybe you know, another lesson that is, I think it's relevant today, and it's one that maybe we first saw being demonstrated during the global financial crisis, and that is policymakers, monitoring and fiscal policymakers, uh, now can be counted on to react decisively and aggressively to try to mitigate the damage of these types of events. And we saw that with the very quick response uh, to this pandemic. We saw the, the monetary, the central banks around the world quickly take out the playbook that was written for the first time in 2008 and 2009, when there was a lot of discussion and debate. Can we, can we actually lower interest rates to zero? Is that something we can do? Can we do quantitative easing? Is that going to be effective? So now with this current global recession, we've seen central banks around the world respond very quickly. They knew where the playbook was and what chapter they needed to open to. So they moved very quickly to adjust interest rates and to begin quantitative easing programs and to introduce liquidity facilities to keep the money market machinery running. All those lessons that were learned in the global financial crisis. And similarly, uh, the fiscal policy response now has been very uh, impressive, but in size and speed and around the world. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind that uh, we've perhaps learned from a policy standpoint that we can do things to help mitigate some of the damage and we can count on policymakers to do that. And it's not, they're not going to let things 
free fall into the abyss. Mm -hmm. So this week I had a conversation that started out with uh, supposedly the four most dangerous words in investing. This time is different. Um, and the person I was speaking to did really did think this time was different. So I'm wondering, do you think this time is different? Well, you know, it's a uh, short answer. No, I think uh, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. It's, it's all been said and done before in a way. So there's there's nothing new, startlingly new about what we're going through today. It's uh, it's a what's the saying that if history doesn't repeat itself, at least it rhymes. So maybe a little bit different than the global financial crisis, for sure, but many similarities. Um, now, having said that, I think, does that mean that nothing ever changes? Well, of course not. As I just said, policymakers have learned uh, how to effectively respond to these kinds of crises. Um, and I also think specifically with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, as I speak to you from my dining room, uh, I think that a lot of the things that we've learned over the past several months about working from home, conducting meetings virtually, uh, we're not going to unlearn that. I think a lot of that is going to continue to be part of uh, the work environment, uh, the school environment, online learning. Um, so there, there, there are lots of changes that are taking place now, which I think are permanent, uh, but I agree 100%. Those are dangerous words. This time, it's different. So um, I'd love to touch on a bit of your background in economics. As I mentioned uh, earlier, you have a PhD in economics, and you do live your life through the lens um, of an economist. So when we spoke a little bit earlier, you talked about uh, something that you think about a lot, and that's the, the causes um, that... Uh, and what causes an economic expansion to come to an end. So can you just walk us through um, some of that thinking leading up to the pandemic? I know you'd thought about it in the periods sort of after 2008, you sort of wrestled with that question. Bring us up to date, and then I'd love to ask you um, how you see the recovery taking place. Sort of what, what shape do you think? What will it look like? Uh, give us a sort of a mini course uh, on economics as we, as we enter this last period. All right, and you can edit this in the studio if it gets too long-winded. Um, so I, it's, it's true. I often say that I, I, I look at the world through that lens. Um, and as we think about economic cycles and market cycles, uh, we certainly had a very, very long economic expansion, historically long, uh, and a long market uh, bull run that was also historically long. And there was discussion and debate about what what causes a market cycle to come to an end? What causes an economic cycle to come to an end? And is it something that is, um, it just sort of runs out of steam, gets old and tired, and, and that's why an economic recovery comes to an end? And the answer, I think, is pretty clearly that that's not it. It's, uh, it's always some event. It's an exogenous event. It's an oil price shock, for example. In 1990, Iran, uh, uh, yeah, the Iraq invaded Kuwait. And that was a catalyst for a tremendous adjustment in oil prices and a catalyst for an economic recession. So it's an exogenous event or it's a policy mistake. And I think maybe as we look back historically at economic cycles, more often than not, what happens that causes an economic cycle to come to an end is a policy mistake, usually a central bank policy mistake, raising interest rates too quickly and slowing things down too much. Um, we, you know, I, I think I could point to the 2018 
early 2018 period as a good example of um, recent policy mistakes. So beginning of 2018, we had this wonderful situation where uh, global economies were growing, synchronized growth around the world. Almost any economy you could point to, whether it was in the European zone, uh, the United States, Canada, Australia, China, around the world, economies are growing. And it was observed that this is about the first time since the Eisenhower administration where we had globally synchronized economic growth. Well, so what happened? Well, I would argue that what happened is the United States in particular made two policy mistakes that were detrimental for global economic growth. The first was to launch a trade war. And people can have different views about whether that was appropriate, justified, whether we have legitimate grievances in terms of trade relations with China. We do. Uh, but the trade war clearly was uh, an impediment to economic growth. And to create that kind of tension between the world's two largest economies was bound to slow down economic growth. And it did. And then I would argue uh, that the other policy mistake that was made was the tax cut at the end of 2017. And again, you can argue, and I would tend to agree, tax reform is necessary. Corporate tax reform had been something that had been discussed for a long time. But the timing and the structure of the tax change at the end of 2017 was one that, from a just fiscal policy standpoint, was probably bad policy. So you're adding fiscal stimulus late in the economic cycle when the unemployment rate is already low and fiscal stimulus isn't needed, and you're creating a significant budget burden. So we were talking about trillion-dollar budget deficits even before the COVID pandemic hit. So those are two policy mistakes that were made. We came close to making a third policy mistake, but in this case, uh, my view of, of history there is that the central bank uh, quickly pivoted and turned away from a policy of raising interest rates and uh, reducing the Fed balance sheet and realized that uh, a pause was necessary and then quickly turned from a pause into an easing cycle. So we, we came pretty close to committing a third um, policy mistake there. And again, before the COVID pandemic even occurred. So the shape of the recovery, um, I would say uh, a V-shaped recovery is probably, I don't know that there are too many people still holding on to that hope. We've, uh, one of the things that we've talked about in our shop is what does the shape of this look like? And the, uh, the graphic image that we come up with is um, the Nike swoosh. And hopefully we're not in violation of any trademarks there, but that kind of sharp decline and then a, a gradual uh, recovery. And indeed, uh, I think it's probably going to be bumpier and more uneven than even that graphic image would suggest. Um, so the, the, the economy will recover. It is recovering. We're seeing some hopeful signs. We, we saw industrial production today, uh, factory uh, output both jumping very significantly. But I think, and maybe that's an indication of what the kind of recovery, what the shape of the recovery might look like. In other words, there are likely to be some sectors that will bounce back more quickly than others. And manufacturing is probably one that will be able to come back more quickly. Construction, perhaps, is one that will perhaps come back more quickly. And as I alluded to earlier, I think there are other sectors, um, hotels, airlines, 
convention businesses, car rental companies, uh, movie theater chains. These are businesses where the recovery is going to be much, much more drawn out. And so I think we, we should be mindful of the fact that while we do see signs of recovery, this is, this is going to be a long drawn out process. It'll probably be one where there are setbacks. I think the market's kind of processing some of that today, uh, recognizing that uh, the, the enthusiasm at the early part of June that we were quickly recovering from the pandemic has now been replaced with a more realistic assessment that it's, it's not over yet, it's not gone away, um, and we still have to deal with it. And there are still millions of people who are unemployed, potentially losing their extended unemployment benefits in the very near future, and for whom many, many jobs are never going to come back. So it, it's going to be a very challenging um, climb out of this recession. Indeed it will. But I'm glad you mentioned some hopeful signs. I love to end these conversations with what I call the ray of sunshine question. This has been a new thing since the, the COVID pandemic. And so I guess two things. Uh, what has been the most positive change that you have seen, I guess, for you personally that has come out of this? And what are you most optimistic over the long term in terms of changes that you think will, will last? Well, I think personally speaking, uh, I've gotten used to working from home. Um, it is much more convenient uh, moving from the kitchen table to the dining room table than getting on a, a Metro North commuter train and riding into Midtown Manhattan. So that's been a plus. Uh, and I think that's probably going to stay that way for at least a few more months. Uh, in terms of um, cause for optimism or you know, the, the ray of sunshine that you're looking for, perhaps just as I alluded to earlier, the view that... Um, there have been many episodes like this in the past, uh, and it is difficult. This this one is new and different. I can't say, um, you know, every 10 years or so we have a pandemic. That's certainly not the case. But I believe that um, this too will pass. And the news today, for example, which I think is uh, affecting the market, is the suggestion that some of the companies that are working feverishly on a uh, on a vaccine are starting to see some progress. And... Um, so this may be something that is um, that comes along relatively soon and allows us to return to really normal behavior, to go to baseball games and movie theaters and visit with our friends and, and do the things that we used to do. That I don't think that is years away. I think maybe maybe just months away. Well, on that positive note, sorry, we'll have to leave it there, John. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your time today. And please do stay safe out there. You too. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I've enjoyed it very much. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.